0: Matthew chapter 4, I know most of you are already making your way there, you know where to go, see it on the handout. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, you may have thought we were going to die out in the first 11 verses of this chapter, but we didn't. Um, We looked at those verses for three weeks on the temptation of Jesus by Satan. So today we do move on. I was not sure how far we would move on this week. I'll be honest with you, I kind of struggled with this. Um, I hit a point like, am I supposed to go through verse number 17, or am I supposed to go through verse 22? I really thought probably we'd go through 22, but as we got into it, there was plenty to uh, occupy our attention this morning, and hopefully to hear from the Lord in verses 12 through 17. So with that in mind, this is a different section, I'll go ahead and tell you, probably not a goosebump moment, all right? But every portion of Scripture is inspired by God, and it is all... Profitable. So I hope that right now, uh, especially, I hope you have your own copy of the Bible and you'll just kind of keep it open. There'll be a time or two, some things will not be on the screen, and you'll be able to do a quick access and see it because what we're about to read is way more authoritative than what I will say about it. Okay? So verses 12 through 17, following the temptation of Jesus, verse 12. Now, when he heard, That John, this is John the Baptist, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So Jesus hears John has been arrested and he withdraws to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, so Nazareth is actually in Galilee, but he's going to get more specific. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea I apologize I really should have had a map up here but if you have a paper and leather Bible then you have maps in the back and you may want to even while I'm talking really quickly flip back there and you can see Palestine in the time of Jesus and so in a moment you can kind of flip to that and up toward the top you'll see Galilee if you don't have a map just kind of watch my crude method here all right So you have Judea, you have Samaria. These are half-Jew, half-Gentiles. Judea, very traditional Jews, very traditional. They're real strict about preserving the Jewish nation. Don't intermingle. So here in the time of Christ, most of those type folks were down in Judea, this region. Then you have this region of Samaria. These are half-Jew, half-Gentile. But on above them is Galilee up north, and these are mostly Jews But you're going to hear it referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles because Gentiles are going through their land all the time, all around, much more than would be down south in Judea. So back to verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. So the sea, if you have your map up, is called the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a freshwater lake, but it was known as the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Gennesaret. So this is way up on the north point of Galilee. That's where Jesus is going to launch his ministry. And he's going to use that as his headquarters, this town called Capernaum. And then the Bible, verse 13, says it's in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And I don't want to take anything for granted, nor do I want to insult anyone's attention. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know it goes like this. God approaches Abraham makes a special covenant with him. He's the first Jew. He has Isaac, and he has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when they finally get into the promised land, each tribe gets a special segment, allotment to them of the land. Two of Jacob's sons were these two men, Zebulun and Naphtali. And so hundreds of years after Jacob has passed away, they go into the land And Zebulun and Naphtali, their region falls in this Galilee. So that's the point of that. So, verse 13, one more time. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? Matthew always draws our attention back to this so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah 700 years ago, before then, might be fulfilled. And then now, here goes Matthew as he's apt to do. He's going to cut away, and he's going to pull from the book of Isaiah or any of the Old Testament prophets, and he's going to kind of quote them. And here he's basically quoting Isaiah 9. So Matthew's saying this, what Jesus does in verse 12 and 13, is a fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. What does Isaiah say? Verse 15. Here we go. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea. So he has to get away from Nazareth that's much more in the land. Up to the way of the sea. Beyond the Jordan. So if you have your map up, that phrase sounds unique. Beyond the Jordan would be on the east side. So from your perspective, the other side of the Jordan. And yet, okay, Isaiah is talking about an invading Assyrian army. And so from their perspective, Naphtali and Zebulun would be on the other side of the Jordan. And that. So here's Matthew quoting Isaiah. And that's why that phrase is a little tricky. Let's read verse 15 again. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. This is Matthew saying, when Jesus goes there, it's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned from that time. And then verse 17, if I could say it this way. Verse 17 is going to launch us really for like, I don't know, 18 chapters, 18 or 20 chapters. This is going to be the theme. This is the main idea. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Really up till now, from Matthew's perspective, it's been what's happening to Jesus. He seems more passive. Uh, His parents are doing this. This is happening. Now it's going to be from this point on, what does Jesus do? So from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. Let's see. Can we get some help on that? I'm hearing that. Um, So anybody knows how to maybe just take it out. Uh, It's kind of distracting. Thank you. Verse number 17, look at it one more time. So from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, and this should sound familiar, say, man, this sounds a lot like chapter 3, verse number 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's Jesus' message Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, everybody know where we're going today? If you were preaching this, I'm gonna tell you, I wrestled with this all week. It's like, Lord, you're gonna to have to tell me what does this even mean. I kind of want to skip this passage and let's just kind of get to the next. Lord, you've got to, to give me something. What are the points here? What's the main thrust of this? And so I kind of wrestled with it, and maybe you wouldn't, I did. Um, but before I, I give you what I feel are some of the main ideas, I do want to hit a couple of things. Number one, look at verse number 12. This is introduction. Look at verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So there is a gap of time, all right? So between the temptation of Christ and verse number 11. So between verse 11, there's a gap of time. If we were doing a a series on the life of Christ, we would go away from Matthew here and we would jump over to John and we would see some things that John wrote. But we're not doing a study of the life of Christ. We're doing a study of the gospel of Matthew. So what I'm trying to say is there's a significant gap of time between verse 11 and kind of what happens in verse 12, 13, and 14. You're like, what was skipped? You ever heard of these things? Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's a quick visit. He goes to a wedding. And when they run out of wine, no problem. Jesus turns water into wine. It was better than the wine they had to begin with. Jesus, also between this, goes back down south to Jerusalem. He doesn't spend much of his ministry in Jerusalem. But he goes down south. And while there at the Feast of Passover... He ends up cleansing the temple. And I don't mean like of dirt and germs. He cleanses the temple of money changers who were using religion in the feast to make money off of people. Because the Jews had to make a, a specific coin offering. And so they needed to change in other currency for this currency. And they were ripping them off in the exchange. And they made sacrifices. And they oversold the value of the animal sacrifices. So Jesus cleanses the temple during that. And apparently he does that twice in his ministry according to John. Also, while in Jerusalem, this happened as well. You remember Jesus and Nicodemus. If you've ever heard a preacher or or someone use the phrase, have you ever been born again? Where do we get that from? Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's the conversation with Nicodemus. Another one, uh, some of our kids in Sunday school studied this last week. Jesus heads north, and while he's heading north, he meets with a woman of Samaria at a well. And she had had five husbands, and now she doesn't even have a, a sixth husband. She's just kind of shacking up with the sixth man. I guess she's given up on marriage. That all happens in between this. You say, well, why doesn't Matthew cover it? John is written 30 years after Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John, it's as though he's saying, I'm going to supplement some of the things those three guys didn't cover. And even John admits at the end of his book, nobody can write it all. If we tried to write it all, the world could not contain the books of all the things that Jesus said and did. One more thing by introduction. Look at verse 12. I will not spend long on it because it comes back around in about 10 chapters from now. Verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested. Matthew does not give the details here, so let me just say this. You remember Herod the Great? Y'all remember him? Uh, he's no good. He did a few good things, but he had a wicked heart. Herod the Great, we know that he tried to exterminate Jesus by killing babies in Bethlehem that were two years old and under. Here's a man who had multiple wives, and because he has multiple wives, he has multiple children by these wives. Follow me. So Jesus hears that John's been arrested. What's going on? One of Herod's sons has a daughter named Herodias. Herodias is going to get married, but here's one of the twisted things. This family has a unique level of depravity, the family of Herod Herod. The great. And they become other Herods. So he's died. He was actually a king. And they become lower level but still very powerful men. His sons get put in positions. So one of his sons has a daughter named Herodias. It's time for her to get married. And she ends up marrying her uncle. Okay? So that's twisted. She marries Philip, Herod Philip I. So she marries Uncle Philip who becomes husband Philip. That's a problem. But it gets worse. Because she leaves uncle husband Philip to marry another man, another uncle, Herod Antipas. And so Antipas steals Herodias from his brother Philip. And the reason John's in prison is because Herod Antipas' solution to his sin is not to repent. It's when John actually calls him out and says that is immoral, illegal, illegal sinful lawlessness, what you've done, stealing your niece from your brother to be your wife. This is twisted. And Herod's solution, Herod Antipas' solution is, you're going to jail for that. Should have been to repent. And so Jesus hears this in verse 12. All right, so today as I looked at this text, I want us to look at three things. The first one is probably the most unusual, but I I have to hit it. I couldn't skip it because actually the first four or five verses of the first four verses of this are about this theme, I believe. And uh, so we, you see our title today: the dawn of Christ's ministry. He's no longer on the sideline being spoken about; he's doing the ministry. And so here's the dawn of Christ's ministry. Three things we want to note. Number one: follow with me. The place of Christ's ministry. The place of Christ's ministry. I really hope I'm not fabricating something that's not in the text, making a too big a deal about something that's not in the text. I hope I'm, I'm treating this accurately. Look, if you would, verse number 14. Back up to verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went in to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Matthew is constantly trying to point our attention back. He's done this multiple times. I'll not even revisit the list. But he keeps on showing the life of Jesus uniquely fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, can I say this? No other life fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. Someone may fit that and they may fit that. But Jesus ends up fitting, Matthew's big on this, Him plus the other New Testament, watch, 300 different prophecies are fulfilled. Here's one of them, and Matthew says, when he did not anchor his ministry in Judea, but instead went to Galilee, it was a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So he is really big. And by the way, watch. This is not a case of Jesus being smarter than everybody and being a scholar of what we call the Old Testament and making himself a list of 300 things and saying, I'm going to fabricate fulfillments and check them off the list and hopefully people will think I'm the Messiah. That is not the case. He's not going out intentionally causing these things to pretend. It's a case of God the Father knew that His Son would base His operations of His ministry from Capernaum of Galilee, and God wrote it down 700 years in advance as a sign to look for. Be looking for this. Matthew catches it and records it for us. So here's kind of where I want to head with this thought. These four verses, verse 12 through 15. I'm going to propose to you for the next few minutes that this text is making a big point about how location matters. This is actually timely for me. I can't tell you why this week. We're talking about location. Location matters. Where people are at, where you're at, matters. You ever heard of the Continental Divide? heard of that. It actually is up uh, up above Pickens. There's a one spot of it that when you go over from North Carolina or South Carolina into North Carolina, they have a little sign over there on Highway 178 uh, that says you just crossed the Continental Divide. My understanding of that, and I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is a case. Follow me, a single raindrop, its ultimate destination can be greatly affected, totally changed. By a fraction of an inch. As this raindrop falls and the wind sends it that way and it hits a little current, it goes this way and it goes this way and that way. Where that raindrop falls, if if there's a tree right on the pinnacle of the plateau of the continental divide, where that raindrop falls, literally a fraction of an inch, this way or that way, where it hits that tree and becomes like kind of plinko as it goes down through the tree and ultimately drops on the ground... Is it going to go this way or that way? That will affect, will this raindrop end up hitting this and going down, create a little stream, flows into a creek, flows into a river, and goes down into the Gulf of Mexico? Or will it do the same thing and end up over in the Atlantic Ocean all by a fraction of an inch? Is it on this side of the tree or on that side? It's going to end up in a totally different place. Location matters. Location matters. Why is is Matthew saying all this? Okay, he went to Galilee and he started doing his ministry there. Let's move on. We got it, Jeff. Let's go. Location matters. I want to make a few statements I hope you'll get. I don't know that I'm going to be very good at getting these thoughts across. Here's another thought. When something big happens, it has an effect far away. But it has a greater effect nearby. Nearby. When something big happens, Jesus' ministry. It has an effect far away, but it has a greater effect nearby. This is going to matter. Location matters. We live in South Carolina. What that means is years ago when Michelin, BMW, and Boeing chose to build plants in South Carolina, those decisions affected all of our lives in some way. And some of our lives, in great ways. let would say that again. Big boardroom, months and months, lots of research, meeting with people, trying to get tax favors what's the price of the land over here, what's the infrastructure, how close to an airport, all of these things. Finally, Michelin, Boeing, BMW, build in South Carolina, that's going to affect all. You say, it had not affected my life. Oh, yes, it has. It's going to affect the traffic flow, how much our roads are used, how much money is coming into the area, how, much, how many taxes are in the area. These are boosts to the economy, how many people have jobs. This affects all of us in some way, but some of us, that's those of you who work at one of those places, in great ways. You're like, oh, that has affected my life greatly. Our paycheck comes from there, our food comes from those paychecks. Location matters. You're like, Jeff, I'm still not tracking with it. Sounds like you think it's important, but really you're just talking about some geography up there. This Sunday morning, we got to get to something spiritual. Hang with me. Most of Jesus's ministry is in Galilee for three years. He makes some trips, and if you only looked at John's gospel, you'd think most of it was in Judea, there around Jerusalem. But by a vast majority of his time is spent in Galilee. That matters. Three things I want you to notice about Galilee. Again, this isn't spiritual so much. Watch. Number one, it is very fertile ground, and there's a thriving fishing industry. Jesus goes to that place. Here's another. They are open to new ideas, very open to new ideas. Why? Because they're surrounded by Gentiles. You have to picture in your mind, if you think of it, you have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. To Galilee's west are the Phoenicians, those are Gentiles. To Galilee's north and east are the Syrians. To the south are the half Jew, half Gentiles. So Gentiles are going through their land all the time. Down south, it's core Jews. Very traditional. Jesus chooses to launch his ministry, dawn the light of his ministry way up in Galilee. Why? They're open to new ideas. And by the way, it is, this was new to me. Galilee is much more populated than you would imagine in your mind. You've got, if you're picturing oh, over here's a little town has got 50 people, and over here's a little town that has maybe 125, and over here's a town, it's a big one because it's got 700 people, forget that idea. All right? I had to update my thinking. So Galilee is a region that's like 50 miles long by 25 miles wide. So basically from where you're sitting up to Spartanburg and do a swath of land about 25 miles, that would be some of the widest places. So that big... And one of the people who was a governor of this land was named Josephus. And he was a very respected historian who lived at that time. And in his writings, he ends up saying that, that Galilee, this 50 by 25, has like 200 villages and towns in it. Most of which, in fact, he says all of them, but that's probably an exaggeration, have 15,000 people in them. 200. I ran those numbers. That's 3 million people. Most people don't go that high, but even others suggest there were over 2 million people, much more than live in Anderson and Greenville County and Spartanburg combined. 2 million people. And so Jesus, it's not like got to go find people. Gentiles and Jews are all around, and these people are open to new ideas. And it's a very thriving economy, much better than down in Judea. And now I want to turn this spiritual. If you want to write this down, God often uses Very special circumstances to put his people where he wants them to be so that they will do his work at the right time. Hear that again. God uses circumstances. I know we've got like a large number for size of youth group. We have a large number of seniors, and some of them are still making decisions where they're going to go to school. Location matters. It just matters. It matters a lot. And sometimes God uses circumstances to bend people's attention in a certain direction. He does this with the life of Christ. Look at verse number 12. Would you look at it? Now, when he heard that John had been arrested. Something about Jesus, hearing that John, whose ministry is mainly down in Judea area, he hears that John has been arrested. Something in that causes Jesus to He withdrew. He withdrew. I said it correctly. He withdrew. I should have said it caused him to withdraw. And the word there kind of means to preserve, to be safe. That's a circumstance. Jesus, he, he's, again, he's, even though he's God, he's laying aside his omni- omniscience, and he hears from someone, John's been arrested, that's a cue, I'm heading north. I don't even know why heading north is better, but he heads north. Go if you would, John chapter 4. Flip over there, John chapter 4, just a few pages away. What kind of circumstances does God use in the life of Christ? John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus, so hear it again, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So the Pharisees are kind of enemies of John the Baptist. They've become the enemies of Jesus. And he knows that they've heard that Jesus' ministry is outgrowing John. And Jesus is baptizing people lack like John except verse number 2. Look at it. Although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. So Jesus' disciples are doing the baptism. But people are following Christ even more than we're following John. So what does this happen? Verse 3. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So here's a circumstance. John's been arrested. I know Jesus knows. The Pharisees have heard that his ministry is growing, and so his conclusion: I'm going to head north to Galilee. So you think, okay, great. He's going to go to his hometown. Flip over to Luke, just back a you know few pages. Luke chapter four. Flip over there. Luke four. I don't have time to develop this. I'm just going to throw it out. You remember a few weeks ago? When we, we saw that the Holy Spirit descended on Christ at baptism, we said that anointed him for ministry. And so Jesus is going to come into his hometown of Nazareth. He's going to stand on the synagogue. He's going to get a scroll. He's going to read in Isaiah this prophecy that goes something like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, He said to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord, the Lord's favor. He reads the scrolls and puts it aside. Then he sits down and starts teaching the people at Nazareth and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And at first, this sounds exciting to them, but then he tells them a prophet does not have honor in his own city, his own country, basically he's saying, you guys are going to reject me. And they're probably thinking, no, we won't. I'm not going to go into all that he said that offends them, but look quickly, verse 28. So he's in his hometown. Oh, he's going to head north, and he's going to launch his ministry from Nazareth. No, Verse 28. When, this is his hometown, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They're getting ready to execute, murder Jesus. But passing through their midst, a bit of a miracle, he went away and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. So, what do we find? God uses circumstances to put his people where he wants them. Jesus here, John's been arrested. The Pharisees are growing suspicious. And now he learns that his own hometown has rejected him. And so where is he going to go? Capernaum is the place where Jesus is. And it's a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, last thing I'm going to say, and this is where I want you to get, like Jeff, this is still a bunch of geography. Jeff, you've gone a long way around the barn to make one point. But I want you to get the point. Here it is. Christ's decision to minister in Galilee, though prompted by circumstances from God, hear it. Christ's decision means that since he's ministering in one place, he cannot be ministering in another place. He would not be ministering in Judea. You say, Jesus is God. Yes, he is. But while on earth for 33 years, he was not omnipresent. Jesus was in one place at one time. And so as he's ministering in Galilee, he's not focusing his ministry in Judea. Jeff, what does that mean? What's the big deal? Here it comes. Galilee is going to receive more spiritual light, greater spiritual light than Judea does. Jeff, what does that mean? Just be blunt. More Galileans are in heaven today because Jesus' ministry was launched in Galilee than were born again in Judea. You say, what? Because Jesus decided, yes, something big has an effect far away, but it has a greater effect nearby. Because Jesus launched his ministry in Galilee. The most famous life, the most impactful life in the history of the world was not an American, a South Carolinian, a Southerner. No, it was a Galilean. They get a claim on that. It wasn't a Judean. It was a Galilean. And Galilee received more spiritual light than Judea did. Why? More of them are in heaven than the Judeans Today. Why? Because Jesus made a decision to be there and not there. If you'll study the book of Acts, I want to challenge you. Guys, this location matters. Paul goes out on the second missionary journey. You know where he goes from your perspective? He goes to Turkey, he goes to Greece. Macedonia, Achaia. We know that he eventually goes to Rome, to Italy. We know he has plans to go to Spain. You see what happens? The gospel on the missionary journeys is going west toward Europe. It's not going south to Africa. It's not going way up north into Russia. It's not going east to the stands, right? doesn't go to Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and I'm not even saying those things correctly. It doesn't go to the Philippines. It doesn't go to India. It doesn't go to China or Vietnam, Does it go there? Where does it go? It goes this direction. Has that choice by God affected the last 2,000 years? Greatly. Greatly. Location matters. God uses circumstances in your life. So, my question is He's moved. Have you paid attention? He's moved. You say, I'm just living life. I just liked A better than B. But if you were walking with the Lord, he had you in a certain place. He has you in a certain place. Why? For eternal consequences. So I've got to ask you, what eternal difference has it made that you were born in the family you were born in and not in the Philippines or India or China? I was born to the Bartlett's of Weaverville, North Carolina, 1970, lived there in the 70s and 80s. That had a difference in my life. There were eternal eternal consequences that I was born to them there at that time than if I were born at another place to another family at another time. Location and timing matter. Parents, listen. What eternal difference will it matter that God put your kids in your family and not some other person's family? What eternal difference? We have a mission. We have a job to be doing. What eternal difference will it matter when we get to heaven that God gave you your spouse and didn't let them marry that other loser. (laughs) Right? Because that was the wrong person. They got you. But the question you have to ask, Lord, what eternal difference is it going to make that I'm the one married to this person? I'm responsible for them. God, you gave us us, these kids. These kids are our kids. These are our grandkids. The neighborhood you've lived in. What eternal difference will it matter? The school that you're going to and the classmates that you have. Those that you had if you're not in school anymore. Those of you who've worked jobs, of all the different jobs, of all the people that, is someone going to, get to eternity and think to themselves in torments of hell, I think the guy that worked beside me was a Christian and he's not here. He went to heaven and he knew how to get to heaven, but he never told me. Location matters. God, God doesn't just like randomly scatter his people. He places his people. What eternal difference is it going to make? Hey, let's just be honest. That Graceview is at Centerville Road in Anderson, South Carolina at this time. Do you know there were some unusual circumstances that brought us to this location? If you don't know that story, you need to hear it sometime. What are we going to do with it? We're on Centerville Road. We're not out on 81. We're going to give an account for this location. Yeah, that's all I got. I'm sorry. took a long time. Location matters. A fraction of an inch. You were going to go to that school, but you went to that school. You were going to marry that one. But you ended up not. You married that one. And it could go on and on. Number two. So we see the place of Christ's ministry. And we'll not be as long on this one. But this one's, wow, very important. It's verse 16. The effect of Christ's ministry. Would you look at verse 15 and 16? Would you follow that with me? Here's Isaiah's prophecy. This is important. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, surrounded by Gentiles. Why is that so important? This is where Christ is going. The people dwelling in darkness. Read this verse, guys. Really read it. The people dwelling. They live in it. They're sitting in it. They're not just walking through it like they were in the Old Testament. Now this darkness is so permeated. They're just living, sitting, dwelling. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What is this in reference to? Jesus goes to Galilee. He's the light. He's going to change things because they've been living in darkness. So I have to ask you this morning, if you were standing here and I was sitting there, what would you tell me darkness means? What is this darkness? What is this light? And I kind of struggle. Or what is this darkness? It's not literal. It's not like, man, Galilee kind of has a haze. They have real bad smog up there. So they're a little lower lit. Judea, is, it's not that at all. It's all around the world. People live in darkness, but Galilee received a great light. So here's my question. I want you to thinking with me. What is this darkness? So I want to propose, if you're keeping notes, you're gonna, I'm going to help you get half of the note, but the full note will not be up in for, for a few more minutes. Write this down. In Matthew's metaphor of darkness and light, darkness, what does it represent? Darkness represents, we could say, all of mankind's ignorant minds. So when you're saying, Lord, what do you mean when people are dwelling in darkness? He's referring to mankind's ignorant minds. You say, Jeff, that's a bad word. You shouldn't say that. Your name calling. No, I'm making a fact. Ignorance just means you lack knowledge. You're not perceiving some things. Darkness represents mankind's ignorant minds, but it's more than that. It's our wicked hearts. It's our ignorant minds, but it's our wicked, sin-loving hearts, which result, put those together, and it ends up in a sinful life. It's darkened minds, ignorant minds, result with darkened, sinful, sin-craving, vile hearts which lead to sinful lifestyles. Think through those again quickly. Catch it. Darkened minds. They're all around us. There's there's somebody here this morning with a darkened mind. What does that mean? They're here. They're unperceptive to the most important, the most urgent things. They came to church this morning. In their mind, the most important thing was, what do I look like? Anderson County has 200,000 people. 200,000 people are not in church this morning. Many of the people. The most important thing about Sunday is, I sleep in. Or I get together with family. Or I'm going to get some yard work done. Those are the most important. They are totally clueless. They do not perceive the main things in life. They have dark minds. Ignorant. Just totally, just missing it. Everything else is important. important. Not this. Wouldn't miss a sporting event, but never have anything to do with God. This is important. No, that's that's a little distraction while we're here in this lowland of sorrows. It's not only the darkened, ignorant, unperceptive mind, it's the darkened heart. What does this mean? All of us are born with hearts that are vile, abominable, craves, desires sinful, wicked things. Why? We have dark hearts. We have unperceptive, ignorant, dark minds. All of that leads to darkened lives. What does that mean? Sinful lives, cruel. Man, there's a dark place over there. Be careful. You're going to go there? Well, you got to watch this. Watch your wallet. Be careful. You need to travel in a pack. Why? That's a dark place over there. They're mean. They'll just kill you and not think twice about it. They're cruel. Ultimately, it's disobedient to God. Why? They have darkened lives, darkened hearts, darkened minds. Now, to complete your note, to me, the key is the darkened mind. So what is this analogy? Write this down. We are all born blind to God's truths. We are all born blind to God's truths. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we will not, we cannot perceive them by trying harder. You see this book? So I get to, but I have to stand up here each week and on Wednesday night, and I'm going to give an account to what I say this book says. This book is totally locked out to me. I learned that this week. I think that was really the point. Like, Lord, you're not giving me, Lord, what does this passage mean? you got to open this up. And it wasn't for a lack of Trying. An unsaved person can try real hard, and they can read and read and read. And along the way, you learn many facts about the Bible, but you're missing the truths. Why? Because this is a spiritual book, and we're earthbound. Here's what I'm saying. God's truth will never be perceived by mankind until God turns the light on. It is up to God to turn the light on. It's the same thing in an unsaved soul. You're like, I don't know why they don't get it. I've told them as plainly as I can say it. God has to turn the light on. He has to break light into their soul. It's the only hope they have. No, no, no. This person's really smart. I don't care how smart they are. They're going to learn facts. They're not going to get the truths. So, Jeff, you're saying we're born with no spiritual views. Hang with me. I'm not saying we're born with no spiritual views. I'm saying we're born with wrong spiritual views. I'm not saying we're not religious. Mankind is very religious. My point is we are going to have the wrong religions. All man-made religions, ultimately, if you boil them down, are based on us performing. You want to go to a good place when you die, you do good things. And even those religions that say everyone's going to a good place, here's what they will tell you. You want to go to the better part of the good place, then you need to do good things. Man-made, man-made, man-made. So we have religious ideas. We have spiritual ideas. They're just the wrong ones. We're blind to the truth. We have these wicked hearts Blinded hearts, wicked hearts that love sinful things and go out and commit sinful acts. Follow with me if you would. Back to John chapter 3. Flip over there. You're going to want to see it. John chapter 3. We're not going to get lost there. We're just going to touch it. John 3. Very important. John chapter 3. Verse number 17. You should know John 3, 16. You've heard it and you'll hear it again. But look at John 17. Watch it. Here we go. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Son, would you go down there and just condemn them all? Yes, Father, I'll be right back. That's not what happened. Didn't need to happen. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. The world is us, we people. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. I'm not sending you to condemn them. Oh, really? So then we're not condemned. No, the understanding is we're already condemned. I don't need you to go condemn them. I need you to go so that you will die on a cross so that the world can be saved. doesn't mean that all the world will be saved, but they can be. Verse 18. If you're not a Christian and you don't hear another thing I say, look at verse 18. Whoever, whoever believes, this is God's word, God's promise, Here's a statement. You can sink your teeth in this. We're getting it in context. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned. Oh, so me not believing is going to make me condemned? No, you're already condemned. Here's what I want everybody to get this morning. Mankind's default is condemnation. We're all in condemnation. The only thing that moves anyone out of condemnation is if they start believing. Everyone who doesn't believe is already in condemnation. It's not like, well, I'm not going to believe or reject. I want to be in a third. Can I just kind of be in the middle? No, you're in the condemned group. Look at verse 18 again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. It means you moved over here. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John does very plain speech, verse 19. And this is the judgment, the light. This is Christ, has come into the world. Here's our judgment. People loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. We have sinful hearts that that do sinful things, our works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things, this is so plain, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Don't think light only, literal, physical light, though literally I think if my neighbor's house was being broke into at 1 a.m. and I was coming home late and I've got my headlights and I see somebody trying to pry the window open and I kind of just, hey, roll my window. Hey, buddy, let me help you out. Looks like you're having some trouble there. And I put my headlights on him. I don't think he's going to go, oh, hey, thanks. Yeah. Can you put the highs on? Yeah, I notice you're wearing all black. It's kind of dark over there. Here, let me help you out. No, they run. Why? Sinful activity. He doesn't want the light. Hey, I notice you're whispering. Hey, we've got a microphone here. What you are you trying to say? Oh, I'm not saying anything. Why? You're hiding. You don't want your, what you're saying to be exposed. Most of the time when we're, you know, real secretive like that, I'm not talking about birthday party surprises. Most of the time when we're doing that, hey, you didn't hear it from me, but we're sinning, and we don't want everyone to know. Light is just mere exposure. That's what it stands for, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Light, darkness. Watch. We have dark minds, ignorant minds, dark hearts that love sinful things which carries out in a darkened sinful lifestyle disobedient to god and cruel i wrote this down the other day maybe it'll get a point across if one person gets this it was worth me writing all of this and reading it 15 times imagine you have earned by the way you've lived you've earned being in a completely dark cell but i'm not talking about a jail cell it's worse I mean a completely dark cell made of concrete and steel built into the side of a hill. So you put yourself there. It's concrete underneath you, very thick, concrete on your right, on your left, behind you, above you, concrete in front of you. The only steel in the room is there is a steel door, and it's a thick door. You're in it. Side of a hill. You don't even know that you're in the side of a hill. All you know is that this is your existence locked away. There is a door With a keypad, and the keypad opens the door. There's a seven-digit code that will open the door. The problem is with seven digits, it could be 10 million combinations. But the thing is, in this concrete cell, the seven-digit code to the door is posted very openly inside the cell. But you know the problem. There is no light. I mean, absolutely no light to see the code that would work to open the door. If you could just have some light, then you could use the code to open the door and to go outside. And what you don't even know is just outside the door is greater living than anywhere in the world. We're not talking about Disney World living with unlimited resources. Way better than that, just on the other side of the door, but you don't know it. And the code is right there, but it's dark. Hear me. We Christians make a big deal about Jesus. You know why? Because we call him our all in all. Jesus is everything. He's the key. Why? Jesus is the light. Jesus comes into that cell and exposes the code. But he's more than the light. Jesus is the door. He's the door to get out. By the way, he's the abundant life. What's the abundant? He's the abundant life. He's the door. He's the life. To the code. So he's the code. Technically not. The code is faith in the door. Faith in himself. Jesus comes, sheds light, and says, you want to know how to get to abundant life? By the way, I'm the abundant life wherever I am. That's where heaven is. You want to get to that? You have to put your faith and trust in nothing else but me. And you put that code into Christ and you go through the door of Christ and you live the abundant life. It starts with, i got to give you light. You're going to need light. Because you're born in ignorance. But God is light. Would you write that down? God is light. We have Revelation on the screen. The last chapter of the Bible the very last chapter. We're in eternity at this point. Look what the Bible says about the eternal abiding place of Christians, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven. Look at verse 3. This is a key. This is, because the Bible's true, you should read this if you're a Christian Saying, okay, this is what I'm getting ready to experience. Here it comes. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is gone. But the throne of God, so there's the throne of God, and of the Lamb will be in it So, what's going to happen there? And his servants, hey, I'm one of those, will worship him. There's a lot to that. Verse four. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. Okay, God is light. What does this mean? Night will be no more. Why? They will need no light of lamp. Oh, you don't have any lamps there, don't need them. Or sun, there's no sunshine. Well, what's going on? For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jeff, the Bible says God is light. What do you think that means? I think there's a real literal aspect. Here's what it means. God has a glory about him that emanates literal light. Don't need a sun, don't need lamps. Why? We have the throne of God and of the Lamb, God the Father and God the Son. God's glory emanates literal light. Now, go back just a few pages. That was Revelation Go back to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Back just a few pages. Back past Jude, past 3 John, 2nd John, back to 1 John chapter 1. Because the Bible says God is light. What does that mean? He literally emanates light. 1 John chapter 1, look at verse 5. God is light. What does that mean? John, one of the disciples, the last remaining disciple, the youngest of the 12, says the following, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. This is the message. This is what we've heard, and it's what we're proclaiming, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This passage here is not talking about literal emanating light like these lights that are here shining on my page for me to be able to see. You say, Jeff, what does this mean? This light... God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What this means is the righteous character, the moral. We use the word godly, the good, the perfect, pure, the nature of God. He is righteous God. That's what it means. So, yes, there's a literal emanation of light, but then there's a righteous moral character. Now, read again verse 5. I want you to read verse 5 again. Verse, this time we're going to add verse 6 and 7. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So check yourself. Check yourself right now. If we say we have fellowship with Him. I'm a Christian. I fellowship with God. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Here, verse 6 and 7 again. A lot of people say they're a Christian that are not Christians. Someone here this morning would probably fit in that category. You say you're a Christian, but you're not a Christian. And here's one of the evidences. This is not why you're not a Christian. Here's one of the evidences that you're not a Christian. It's verse 6 and 7. Test yourself. If we say we have fellowship with him. Yes, I'm a Christian. While we walk in darkness, that's our lifestyle, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If that light right there were Christ and I am in fellowship with him and I'm moving toward him through this life, I'm walking in the light. But if I'm going away from God, I literally see my shadow right here. If I'm walking in the shadow and in the darkness, I'm going away from God. So apply all of that to this. Hear this, test yourself. When the light of Christ breaks forth in a sinner's soul, breaks on their soul, breaks in their soul, what happens? Christ shines in someone and replaces the darkness. With a new mind. They had an ignorant mind. He replaces it with an enlightened mind. The first thing is this. They realize the way to heaven is not working. Here's the first thing they realize. He's just giving me light. I go to heaven not by works but by his grace. All I do is trust Jesus. That's the first thing they perceive. But it continues. He gives that person a new mind that perceives the truth of God, a new heart that loves God, and a new life of godliness that honors God. He gives us a new mind, a new heart, a new life. So with that, I would make the following proposal. I want to personalize it more than I've written it. My note says, for a person to say, but I'm going to put it this way. If you say you are a Christian, but you have no spiritual perception, and you just don't have affection for God, and your life is dominated by sin, you're not a Christian. If when you read this, Or you hear me teach and preach week after week, your conclusion is I don't ever get anything. I've tried to read the Bible, I've tried to listen to Bible teachers. I just don't, the Bible just doesn't speak to me. And I'm really not that interested. I come for an activity. If your life is dominated by sin, you're you're not perceptive to spiritual things. You don't have affection for God, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that Christians understand everything about the Bible. We never will in this life. But if it's always locked, it's because you're still in darkness. Lastly, back to Matthew chapter 4, verse number 17 the method of Christ's ministry. The method of Christ's ministry. thinking verse number 17 from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Jesus began to preach if you look at verse 23, we may get there next week. It may be the week after. Verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom <clears throat> and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Here's how Christ ministered. Here's the method of Christ's ministry. Watch my hand motions. He healed, he taught. And he preached. He healed. He taught. And he preached. What's the purpose of this? The healing is to get people's attention. You say it's because he's nice. The main goal of healing was to set the stage for his teaching. But the main goal of the teaching is to set the stage for preaching. Why? Why? Because Christ's teaching is God's method of implanting truth into sinners. But preaching calls people to take action, to come to Christ. Preaching calls for a verdict based on the teaching. So he heals, gets their attention, so he can teach truth. So that he can call people to action. That's the method of Christ's ministry. Why is that important? Because I said a while ago, hear me, no one is born into this world knowing the way to heaven, the way to heaven is putting my faith and trust in Jesus. No one's born with that. We have to be taught that. We have to be taught that the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. God just has to give you salvation. You can never do a work. You have to only believe Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus taught these. His teachers under him taught these things. Why? The teaching sets the stage for preaching. I'm going to cut my message short because my voice decided to leave me. All right? But that's okay. It's time. But I want to do this. As you sit there, would you evaluate two things? Really check yourself. You were born into this world, and as you grew up, naturally thinking, the way to heaven is by me performing. And a lot of people around the world will support that idea, but that will send you to hell. You must put your faith and trust in Christ alone. That's the teaching. I'm going to plead You say, man, you're hard to listen to. Your voice is gone. I understand. But I'm going to plead with you, not by getting loud, but by preaching. Preaching is the following. Put your faith and trust in Jesus right where you're sitting. You don't have to wait for in a moment when heads are bowed and eyes are closed. In 2018, I think we had three different ladies that did exactly what I just said. Never came forward. One of them, I think, is going to be baptized in three weeks. Three different ladies that I know of that are here that have told other folks, Oh, in the service I settled my salvation. And you don't have to wait till the end of the service. You literally hear, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, me, believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I'm in, that's the teaching. I'm pleading with you. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Literally have a conversation with God right now where you say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. God, I failed you. I've done it on purpose. I am drawn to sin. But God, I am sorry for my sin. I confess my sin. But I am putting my faith and trust. You have made these promises. This preacher just said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, 31. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13, shall be saved. I don't understand it all, but that's your word. If you've promised it, I'm doing it right now. I'm begging you. I can't believe for you. If I could, I would do it. I cannot believe for you. You have to do it. You say, How much faith? A little. Just a little. Do you hear that it's true? God can't lie. I believe you, God. Right now, I'm going to take you up on your promise. I am putting my faith. That guy, I don't even know his name. He's encouraging me, pleading with me, put my faith and trust in Christ. I'm doing it right now. Christian, location matters. What have you been doing that's going to have an eternal impact right where God's put you? Your family, your job, your school. You say, I only have a few weeks left, and then I graduate. Are you going to make an eternal difference in somebody's life? You say, I'm new on the job. Are you going to make an eternal difference in someone's life? I don't know my neighbors. I struggle with that. God's put us here, where you're at, for such a time as this, to do his bidding to make an eternal difference. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Father, I pray, Lord, that that you would speak to all of us. Lord, really, right now, I pray through Christ that if there's a person that has no spiritual perception, they don't love you, And their life is far more marked by sin than obedience to you. Lord, if that's the case of any person here, and they are not your child, if they meet those qualifications and the description is of an unsaved person, Lord, if they know it, or if they don't know it, and they think they're a Christian, Father, I pray that you would just break light on their soul right now. Lord, we live in a great day. You've blessed us. God, I want to say thank you. I would rather be born in the time and the place I have lived. I thank you, Father, even more than if I had lived in Galilee in Jesus' day. I have a tremendous advantage. Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit that convicted me when I was nine. I thank you for a completed New Testament that makes it crystal clear how to go to heaven. And Lord, if anyone here this morning is struggling with their salvation, would you just right now say to them, would you speak? Tell them they can trust you, but they have to confess their sins. And then they can ask you to forgive them and save them, and you'll do it. God, let them do that right now. In their own words, between them and you, let them ask Christ to save them, knowing He will do it. Father, Speak to the rest of us that are Christians already. Teach us. Location matters. You're in the details. You've put us where we're at for a reason. Make that reason clear. Lord, let us take action today, tomorrow.